Thanks so much, Michael. Whether you've gathered here this morning in person or you're worshiping with us at home, I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you today as we conclude the summer sermon series that we have been looking at, the encounters of, uh, of people with Jesus in the New Testament and the impact that that had, the changes that made. In today's passage, as Mike read a moment ago, we're going to be looking at the story of a post-resurrection encounter with two very weary, dejected, and discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus. This uh, encounter, if you haven't already turned there, is found in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to invite you to turn there, please, chapter 24, chapter 24. And as you are turning to Luke 24, I want to share with you a supposedly, notice the quotes here, true story, you never can tell whether they're true or not, that, uh, that I heard this week in preparation for my sermon that I think is a good introduction to one of the main points of today's sermon. It's a story about a five-year-old boy from Texas, and we just heard our Texas boy, it's not Mike, uh, it's not Pastor Mike, who had been told by his parents that they were going to visit the Grand Canyon for their summer vacation. It's even bigger, they told him, than downtown Dallas. And the boy could hardly wait to see the Grand Canyon, or see this uh, visit here. And, and when they finally got there, uh, they asked him, well, tell me, did it measure up to your expectations? And with a little frown, he, he said, you know, I, I thought you said we were going to visit the Grand Canyon. Um, I was really looking forward to seeing that bad boy fire, you know. Uh, folks, it just goes to show you that when you're expecting to see a Grand Canyon, that even something as spectacular as the Grand Canyon can be a letdown. And that, my friends, is where I think we find these weary travelers emotionally as they were walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus that first Easter morning. They had been hoping that Jesus was the promised Messiah who was going to come in and liberate them from the power of Rome, but their hopes had been clearly dashed when the Jewish religious leaders suddenly succeeded in convincing the Romans to crucify Jesus. And so here they are, they're on their way home, they're dejected, they're disappointed, and I would add a little bit of shock too because it's just in a, a horrible week that they had been through. And, and the truth be told, they had really no reason to be discouraged. For as Mike just read a moment ago, several witnesses, including some of the apostles themselves, had gone to the tomb and they had seen that the tomb was empty. They heard from the voice of the angel that Jesus is not here, he is risen. So the proof was there, but these doubtful disciples did not believe it. Now I know that to be true because if you're taking notes, the first point I want to point out about these doubtful disciples was they were walking in the wrong direction. I know that they didn't believe Jesus had arisen because they were walking in the wrong direction. Look at verses 13 through 16 where Luke writes, that very day, Sunday, or the first day of the resurrection here, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, amazingly, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, truthfully, 
in my research for the sermon, I thought, well, maybe we can find out more details about these two weary, discouraged disciples. But there really isn't a lot in Scripture about them. What we do know, according to verse 18, is one of them's name was Cleopas. Uh, we also know, if you, and when we get down to verse 33, that neither of these disciples were one of the original 11 disciples. The only thing that's clearly presented here within our text about these men is they obviously did not believe Jesus had arisen from the dead. For I believe if they had truly believed Jesus had risen from the dead, why would they be walking away from Jerusalem, rather to Jerusalem, or staying there so that they might see and spend time with their risen Lord? Now, looking back at our biblical text, specifically now verses 14 and 15, we see second an observation about these disciples. As they walk down the road, we see that they were talking and they were disputing with one another. They were talking and they were disputing one another. The word that they translated uh, discussing here, literally in the original Greek, has the idea of an intense and emotional or heated conversation. And they're walking along and they're talking about all the terrible things that had happened to Jesus, to Jesus the week before. And they are apparently getting argumentative and confrontational with one another. No doubt they're, they're quoting all the various Old Testament prophecies that they had heard from Jesus, trying to remember everything that Jesus had taught them. But they were unable to put it all together. They couldn't seemingly come up with an explanation that made any sense. As we just sang a moment ago, the mystery of the cross is is very difficult for our minds to comprehend. And it was true then, it is true now. And then according to verse 15, Jesus himself graciously began walking with them and listening to their animated conversation. And according to verse 16, God sovereignly prevented these disciples from recognizing Jesus and who he was until he was ready to reveal himself. Overhearing the intensity of their conversation, when we look at verse 17, we see, third, that Jesus asked a question that leaves these disciples stunned and saddened. He leaves them stunned and saddened. What is this conversation, Jesus asked, that you are talking about um, with each other as you walk? And, and I love Cleopas' answer to Jesus, paraphrasing here a little bit, verse 18. He says, you must be living under a rock, man. You have to be the only person in Jerusalem who isn't aware or hasn't heard about all the terrible things that have happened this past week. Now, to understand the intensity of Cleopas' surprise here, I want you to think about it this way. I tried to put my place in their sandals. Imagine um, all the events. Anyone who's lived through the events of 9-11 knows that we're never going to forget those events. Those events affected us all so deeply. And, and I want you to try to imagine that three days after 9-11, you're, we're talking about Thursday, September 13, you're walking in your neighborhood with one of your dearest friends and you're discussing from your heart the, the agony and the horror of all the elements of that event when all of a sudden a stranger walks up to you and, and, and interrupts your conversation and they say, hey, hey are you guys okay? Uh, you seem a little stressed. Um, wh- what are you talking about? Folks, I believe that, uh, that we would all react to that kind of a question from a stranger, just as stunned and surprised as what, uh, what happens here with Jesus' comments here. And that's because the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, just like 9-11, had far-reaching impact, not only on the nation, but on the world. Of course, 
Jesus being God knew what they were talking about. But I find it amazing that he so patiently wanted to listen to them. And so Jesus asked them, hey, what things are you talking about? And they went on to say, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 19. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, verse 21, I think is a critical point here. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that we have seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who went with us to the tomb found it just as the woman said, but they did not see Jesus. Notice how in the midst of ratcheting through their concerns about all the things that they've been through, the life, the teaching, the ministry, and the death of Christ, we find that these disciples were forth. They were hoping, they were hoping Jesus was going to redeem Israel. You could put it negatively, we're disappointed that Jesus did not redeem Israel. Can't you just imagine the irony here of Luke's narrative? Here we have two disciples telling the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ himself, we, who has just finished making it possible for all of humanity to be delivered from the power of sin and death, that they were hoping that he would be their redeemer. <laughs> now please understand that the concept here of redemption is not what we would think of when we think of salvation. It's more in the minds of these disciples a powerful military or political figure who they felt would free them from Roman tyranny and restore the nation to what had once been the great times with the, under the rule of King David. And so when Christ died, hear me, with, with, with their expectations and their agenda for Jesus not being met, their hopes died with him. It was in the tomb with him. Making application to our lives here, let's stop here and think about that. I firmly believe that one of the one of the problems we all face are unmet expectations, the same type of unmet expectations that these men on the road to Emmaus were experiencing. Uh, I do a lot of marriage counseling. I do a lot of premarital counseling with my wife, Valerie. And uh, one thing for sure is every couple goes into a marriage with expectations, right? Right? For example, if husband Deary's mother was a great cook, Good old hubby expects his wife to immediately possess the same culinary skills. And so if she doesn't turn out to be a particularly good cook, he may feel hurt and let down. The woman may be going into the marriage. Uh, she sees her husband-to-be has a great job. He holds a vast future, high-paying job. And so she forms in her mind an expectation that they will likely not face any financial struggles in their marriage. But then he loses his job or he changes his career and they begin to struggle financially. She may resent him based on her expectations. Remember, folks, these, uh, these concerns, there were no problems, uh, promises, promises in either of these cases, but they still feel as though they've been deceived. And that's the way faulty expectations uh, ex, uh, <laughs> that's what can happen when we get them. 
they often create a trouble in relationships, whether we're talking parents and children, bosses and employees, friends, ministry partners, members of sports team, and yes, as we see here, even in our relationship with God. Any relation you see when expectations are not met, um, will ensue, it ensues pain. And we often want to blame the one who we didn't feel lined up with our expectations not being met, including God, as we see here with the disciples in this story, even if those expectations were based on ignorance or based on unreasonable circumstances. Now, please hear me clearly on this point. When based on God's word, our expectations will never fail to be met. However, expectations based on human assumptions can seriously cause trouble and discouragement in a relationship or heart. And that's, why I, that's what I believe I think we're dealing with here in our biblical passage. That's also why looking here at verses 25 through 26, we find these doubtful disciples, fifth, being admonished, noticed, and instructed by Jesus. And I might say pretty strongly, verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Folks, the bottom line is that like most of the Jews in that day, these disciples were very, very quick to focus on parts of God's word, but not the whole, especially when it came to the Messiah. They saw a conquering redeemer but they did not see a suffering servant. They saw his glory, but they did not see his sorrow. They saw his crown, but they did not see his cross. If you think about it, we too can become disappointed with God for the same reasons. We piecemeal God's word. We get very selective on what we focus. We love the promises about all the good stuff that God promises for, our children, for his children. But what about those promises like 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, where God in his word ensures us, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you have that in your promise box? Or, or how about Hebrews 12, 11, where God promises discipline for all his children whom he truly loves, saying, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And what about all those references in Scripture about the struggle and warfare that a believer has in their walk, living and serving in a fallen world? Folks, make no mistake about it. When a believer focuses only a part, on a part of God's word, we will be disappointed when, not if, trials or challenges in, in this life of living in a fallen world hit. And so beginning here, Christ is going to correct him here. So beginning with the words of Moses in the book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the books of the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus now goes on very carefully to point out to them everything that was written in the scriptures concerning himself. I, I love to think about what he said. Uh, perhaps Genesis 3.15 is where he started, where we find the very first promise of a redeemer, and he traced that promise all through Scripture. I wondered if he lingered at uh, uh, Genesis 22, where, where Abraham was asked to place his beloved only son, right, on the altar 
uh, only to have God provide a substitute ram. Surely, I, I have to believe he touched on the, the, the festival Passover and Levitical sacrifices and the tabernacle ceremonies and the Day of Atonement. And, and I can't imagine he would miss the, the suffering servant talked about in Isaiah. Try to imagine if you can, it, it gives me goosebumps, <laughs> what it would have been like to have Jesus himself opening up scripture like this and giving you or me an exclusive Bible study of his mission and his ministry, of his person and his work, of his death and his resurrection, of God's plan of salvation for the redemption of mankind. The main point of all this, of course, is that although things did not look really great right now, actually looked hopeless to these disciples, and although they might have doubts, they need not look any further, hear me, they need not look any further than Scripture to understand all that is happening and will happen as all part of God's plan. And that's why I think Jesus very poignantly in verse 26 says to them, was it not necessary, it surely struck a chord in their hearts, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Now before moving on here um, to another observation about these doubtful uh, disciples, one other thought that crossed my mind, and I think it's an important observation here about the relationship of Christ and his word, is um, we see him here citing the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and Jesus is making a pretty bold claim here, isn't he? He's claiming that there is no part of the Old Testament scriptures where his story does not emerge off its pages. The prophecies, the patterns, the types, all the history that is presented there have an end point in mind, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and not only do they point to him, he fulfills them. He is the end to which all history leads and heads. Thus, there's not a part I would submit to you today of the, our Bibles that we can, we can, you know, that can be adequately read without seeing Jesus in some form. Things like God's salvation through Christ, our atonement in Christ, our victory over sin and death in Christ, the centrality of the mission and the preaching of the gospel and the priority it is, and the privilege of playing our part in the salvation history of God's redemption for mankind. It gives me a whole new perspective of how I read scriptures. How about you? Do you, my friends, read the Bible the way that Jesus read his? Well, looking back at our text, looking now specifically at verses 28 and 29, we discover that these disciples were six confronted with a choice. They arrive at their final destination, and uh, it appeared that Jesus was going to keep on walking, but notice verse 29, these disciples begged him to remain there, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So... Jesus went in to stay with them. Now, many argue that the disciples' invitation to Jesus here to come into their home was driven solely by the, the strong laws of hospitality that existed in that day, and, and there's some potential truth to that. But I also firmly believe that these men had been so deeply touched by all that Jesus had been sharing with them from God's word that it seems clear to me that they wanted Jesus to stay so that they could continue to hear more and more about his teaching. But please don't miss the fact, and this really crossed my heart here, or touched my heart, 
Please don't miss the fact that while Jesus joins them on their journey without asking, he didn't ask. He didn't stay with them until they actually invited him to stay. Had they not invited Jesus to stay, I am firmly convinced that Jesus would have continued on his way and never turned back. Now think about that for a minute. We've just sang all these songs about how awesome our God is. He is our King. He is our God. He is our Lord God Almighty. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. He could demand every person on earth recognize him for who he is. And he could demand that everyone follow him. And one day he will do that. But at this moment, he doesn't do that. You know why? He wants us to choose to trust and follow him. And so he waits to be invited. That being noted, in almost every one of these sermons with the Encounter to Jesus series that we've done, there's always been this point where we're kind of challenging everyone sitting here today. Like these doubting disciples, um, you need to make a choice. For several weeks now, you've heard about how Jesus changes the lives of others. But, you know, but they've not chosen whether they are going to invite Jesus into their lives. They had to choose Jesus to come into their lives here. I'm making a mistake there. I don't want to mess this point up. Has Jesus changed your life? John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let this sink in. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Amazingly, in this one verse, very beautifully, Jesus summarizes the good news of the gospel. The love of God was so wide and so deep and so high that he was able to love a world that had gone astray and fallen into sin. We are, all of us, lost without God's merciful intervention. And the only Savior we have from the wages of sin is the Lord Jesus Christ, who noticed God sent into the world because he loves us. All who believe in Jesus, he makes his promise, no longer face eternal death. Rather, instead, we face an eternity with Jesus, a gift from God, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's why, dear friends, in Romans 13, God promises us, everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, you name it. Everyone means everyone. Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called him? Have you invited Jesus into your life? As I see it, just like these disciples, we're being confronted with a choice. One of eternal consequences. Looking back at verses 30 and 31. Jesus enters the house, just as he was asked. He took bread, and after he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And according to verse 31, eyes open, (laughs) and they recognized him. And then he disappeared. Imagine that, out of their sight. The phrase, opened her eyes, is much more, I think, than just a recognition of the identity of Jesus here. I believe its presence means that these once doubtful disciples now truly recognize Jesus as their Messiah, the Son of God, the risen Lord and Savior. And as a result, Jesus vanished, it says here in verse 31, as a result of that, these disciples were seven because they had been with him and in his word set aflame 
on the inside. That's a neat picture. In other words, this encounter with Jesus and his word moved their hearts and their souls to action. And once moved, they could not help but share that good news with others. And, and, and it's dark now. It's late now. Remember, they had, they had hiked seven miles from Jerusalem. And now it's dark, it's late, the roads are dangerous at night to walk on. But it says here, they quickly left for Jerusalem. And there we're told that they ate and they stirred within them to give, they're stirred within them to give witness. This experience with Jesus was so profound, so real, so moving, so life-changing that they just had to tell others about him. They couldn't keep it to themselves. Jesus is alive, they proclaimed, just as he said. As we complete the series today, there are so many different applications. I, I was looking back at all the sermons in this series, amazingly blessed by being in God's word during that time. I hope that you all might leave here today asking yourselves, as I'm asking myself, has meeting, meeting Jesus changed you? Do you know him as your savior? Remember, he forces himself on no one. He waits for you to invite him into your life. Call him, call on him. If you have put your trust in Jesus, and I met with somebody this week during this series that put their trust in Jesus. Hallelujah, amen? amen. If you're already a follower of Christ, can you testify to his abiding presence and peace in your life? Are you truly following him? What's it costing you to follow him, if anything? Has your relationship with him been so real, so moving, so life-changing that it has caused you to want to tell others about him? And last but not least, I think the thing that pops off the applications for this text by these disciples is the danger of short-sighted expectations. Let us remember, my friends, that while God always has a plan, we're not always privy to God's plan. His thoughts are far bigger and higher than ours. And so when things don't turn out like we expect, just like these disciples, instead of giving up and admitting defeat, perhaps we should learn to trust God is up to something and simply we don't understand it, but we trust him. When we can't see God's hand in our circumstances, we have to trust his heart. Let me also remind you, as I was reminded this week, that this life is only the first baby step of our eternity with our Savior. Yes, we live in a fallen world, and yes, there is no escaping the terrible impacts and disappointments caused by sin entering the world. However, in Christ, one day we will enjoy the firm expectation of living with him in a perfect, sinless world forever. In John chapter 14, verse 1, I remember Jesus' troubled disciples a couple weeks ago. I preached Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 writes that the heroes of the faith were looking forward to a heavenly country. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, so do we. 
And Paul writes, I love 1 Corinthians 2.9. I didn't put that up there. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that awesome? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. One of the things about being a pastor in a church is I have the opportunity to minister to lots of people here, and I know there's a lot of challenges going on in a lot of lives within our families here. But no matter what challenge we are facing today, I believe a huge application from this encounter with Jesus by these disciples is that our expectations need, you know, we need to set our hopes and our, our peace on the unconditional love, the transforming of the Holy Spirit, the constant presence that we have. As we sang, the battle belongs to him, right? Our unimaginable eternity with Christ is where we find peace. We will ultimately never be disappointed if we can keep our minds focused on that, Amen. We're going to sing now in a moment, and I hope these words will mean something different to us today, where we're going to declare as a church, I will build my life on your love. It is a firm foundation. We will not be shaken. Let's go ahead and pray, and the praise team is making the web. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful and practical encounter, Lord, with uh, these disciples and Jesus. Lord, thank you for the overall lessons that we've seen and experienced as we've looked together at the way you change lives when people meet your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray even now that if somebody has not yet come to realize their need for Jesus, that they might do that. For those of us who do know, Lord, I pray that our focus would be on your unconditional love, the transforming work you're doing in us, that the, the you have the battle in hand, and that, Lord, we have, we have in our future an unimaginable eternity with Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be motivated by that, to live every day for his glory and for his honor. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.